with God. And that's why God placed us within community, because community helps us not only connect with one another, which we need, but also connect with God. And there's two ways that you can connect with community here at Hope Church. One is you can become part of a small group. You'll be hearing more about our small group push that will be coming up in a few weeks. Uh, because we want everybody that wants to, to be in a small group. We think that's important. A small group is a group of about 8 to 12 people that meet on a regular basis, and they study the Word of God, and they pray for each other, and they just kind of do life together. And we think it's important uh, that you're part of a small group. You could be part of a bigger community like this and almost seem like you don't know anyone and no one knows you, but when you become part of a small group, then you become known and you, you get to know people and you get to care about people and they get to care about you. So we think that's important. So that's one way to grow. The second way is through serving on a team. Um, when you serve on a team with other people, you, you begin to grow and you uh, begin to learn who new some people are and a little bit about them. And, you know, like for our host team, you know, our host teams generally serve together and they get to know each other and they serve together and they use their gifts. You know, Paul characterized the church as a body. And he says the body has many parts, many members. And any, any you know, you would say, well, which, which body part would you would you would you be willing to go without a finger or without a nose or without an ear or without an eye or without a leg? And the answer is most of us say, no, I like them all. <laughs> and essentially, the, the church becomes all that God wants it to be when all the body members, when all the, they, they're all functioning the way they are meant to function. And God has given us all various different gifts and abilities and talents. And so when we begin to use those gifts and abilities and talents, and we use them together, then we become the body that God intended us to be. So to facilitate that so that it, as many people as possible can be uh, connected and part of the body and use your gifts within the body, we have uh, a way for you to get, uh, get more information about that. We have this super short spiritual gift survey, and the host will be handing those out as you leave today, if you are interested, you, maybe you don't want it, but if you do want it, it'll be there. And it'll just kind of give you a summary and it'll give you an area, an idea of where to go, to where you could serve, what your gifts may be. Because maybe you've never done that before, but if you explore that and take that step, I guarantee you, you will begin to grow. What I found is when I first became a Christian, when I began to serve, I began to take steps of growth. And so will you. And I felt like I was more connected to the body. So I would encourage you to do that. But what I want you to do just for a minute is this. If you have served in any ministry over the last year, uh, would you just stand right now? Go ahead, stand. Be, be, just, yeah, go up and stand up. You served anywhere, did anything at Hope Church. Uh, doesn't matter if it was once, twice, three times. You did it every week. Okay, I want to pray for you right now, okay? Father, I do pray for those who have served your body and have used their gifts for your glory. It wasn't for the church. It was for you. I pray your hand a blessing upon them. Father, for those who are here who are not yet serving and don't know really where to go, I pray that you would direct them and guide them. Thank you for these folks, Father, who are faithfully serving uh, your church and being the church. Uh, Father, I would ask that you would uh, guide and direct this church, that we wouldn't just fill, fill positions, but that we would become the, uh, the expression of the body of Christ that you intend us to be. And so we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you. you may be seated. And uh, for those of you that didn't stand up, I just want you to know that it may be that you're, you're new to Hope Church or you're in a place, sometimes you, you are part of a church and you're going through a time where you go, man, I'm in no place to serve. I need to be served. And we get that. We absolutely get that. But we hope that you'll come to a place where you'll say, you know what? I do need to use my gift and I am ready to serve. And when you are ready to serve, maybe you'll start today and you'll get plugged in because I guarantee you it will be a a wonderful step that will be a wonderful step of growth for you and it'll it'll help you get more connected and we'll try to find a way where you can be part of the body of Christ it's serving using your gifts Uh, so we want to challenge you and push you a little bit on that and uh, so anyways uh, last uh, night we had a wedding and that just showed us how much we need everyone because uh, the, the church doesn't do ministry because I'm the pastor. We have a staff. The staff is really here to equip you to do ministry, and you do a great job. And that's why Hope Church is thriving and doing well is because we have so many people who serve and give their time, their talent, and their treasure. And I just really appreciate that. But I know you don't do it for me, and you don't do it for the church. You do it for Him, and that's what makes the difference. We've been moving through the book of Genesis. And, you know, faith is one of those things where... You may be here and you say, you know what, I I think I have faith, but I doubt. And so therefore, I don't think I really have faith. And everyone on the planet really exercises faith. Everyone. (laughs) Whether you believe in God or not, you are exercising faith. You are believing something, right? You maybe heard the story, the story about the plane. And so there were three people on the plane. There was the pilot, a boy scout, and the smartest man in the world. And the pilot came and told uh, the smartest man in the world, the Boy Scout, the plane is going down. And as he's telling, uh, you know, as as the pilot's telling that, the smartest man in the world picks up the, the, and there's only two parachutes. And so he picks up one of the packs and puts it on. And uh, while he's strapping that on, he says, I'm the smartest man in the world. I I have to jump. Uh, I'm sorry, but the world needs me. And he jumps out of the plane. So the pilot looks at the Boy Scout and says, Listen, son, I've lived a long life. You haven't yet. You have yet to live your life. Um, you take the last parachute and, and you jump. Uh, I've lived my life. It's you. You take the chute and you jump. And uh, the Boy Scout says, I don't think we need to worry about that, sir. He says, The smartest man in the world just strapped my backpack to his back and he's not going to make it. Now, here's the point. Some of the most intelligent people in the world have a backpack on that says, there is no God. There is, there is only what I can see with, and sense. They're very intelligent, very smart people. And they're placing faith in a backpack that doesn't have a parachute. And that's a really important thing to understand. Because here's two things we do know. One day the plane is going down for every one of us, right? We're all going to die. The plane is going to crash. And it's not, the most important thing is not how much faith I have. It's where I'm placing it. I can have all the faith in the world in this backpack that I just put on, but it's a Boy Scout backpack. might have a knife in it and a little tray to make a meal, but it's not going to stop me when I hit the ground. I can have very little faith in the parachute, 
but it will stop me. It will save me. And the passage we're going to look at this weekend is uh, an interesting one. It's Genesis 15. And in this passage, Abraham has doubts. He has faith in God, but he has doubts. And he basically says to God, I don't know whether your promise is really going to happen because I don't have any children. So let me read that. This is page 12. It's uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 21. And I just want to uh, just say up front that I will butcher a few names, but that's uh, okay because you would do it even worse. All right? Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all the blessings when I don't even have a son, since you've given me no children? Eleazar uh, of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You gave me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. I would underline, if you have a a page Bible, or even on your app, and Abraham, this next verse, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, bring me three, uh, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham, or Abram, presented all these to him and killed them. And he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, and of course this took place in Egypt. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. And you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites excuse me, did not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given you this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites and the Kenzites and the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Rephites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The question is, what is true faith? What does true faith look like? Because obviously, Abraham, Abram, and Abram turned, God changed his name to Abraham. But what does true faith look like? And there's a few things we can learn. True faith is more than intellectual acceptance. Um, Some of you may think, 
And, and I've talked to people who say, you know, maybe it's at a funeral, maybe it's they're talk, we're talking about a son or a daughter or a parent. They say, well, at least they believe in God. They'll say to me, at least they believe in God. And I cringe when I hear that because I, I know what James says. James says this, James 2.19, You say that you have, pace, uh, you have faith because you believe that God, there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. So be just intellectual assent. Believing there is a God doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, the demons believe it. And so uh, that's why I cringe when I hear people say, well, at least, at least they believe in God or they believed in God. Well, that's good. But it's not good enough. So it's not just uh, intellectual assent. Secondly, true faith is not risking everything, hoping for a divine rescue. I know people, and they're Christians, many of them are Christians, I don't know their hearts, but I assume they're Christians, who put God in impossible conditions, impossible situations, and they see it as a sign of faith. They say, I'm going, I'm going to put myself in this situation, I'm going to cry out to God, and God's going to rescue me, and, and I believe that's exercising faith. It's foolishness, I think. In fact, remember one of the temptations that Jesus got when he was taken up onto the high tower and the enemy said, jump, he'll catch you. And she says, no, you don't test God like that. Well, if Jesus didn't test God, maybe you shouldn't either, right? So that's not faith. Uh, I love what the writer of Proverbs says. He says this, this is Proverbs 19, verses 2 and 3. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, and then they are angry with the Lord. I've met a number of people who are angry with the Lord today because they have done foolish things and they blame God for their foolish choices. That's not God. That's you. By the way, I'm going to call a timeout on the sermon just for a minute, and I'm going to give you a challenge. Some of you maybe have, uh, you know, have a regular uh, a ritual where you're in the Word on a daily basis. I hope you are. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not in the Word and you need to be in the Word. Maybe you were in the Word, but you've gotten out of it. I want to maybe help you jumpstart that. Uh, I would love you to do an exercise for the next month. Proverbs has 31 chapters. The month of August has... 31 days. Now, you're a day behind because it's a second. But you could read one chapter of Proverbs every day for the month of August, and you would read through the book of Proverbs, which would be an absolute great exercise. So if you don't have a plan, I challenge you for the month of August, read through the book of Proverbs. All right, now we're back into the sermon. All right, that's a freebie. There's no extra charge for that. <laughs> All right, the third thing is, true faith will include days of doubt. D doubt is a part of the Christian life. It's not, I'm not, and please hear me, I'm not saying doubt is something we say, oh, well, that's okay, we can do this, and if you have it, rejoice in doubt. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what we should rejoice in. But it's a reality that many of us struggle with doubt sometimes. We all will have days of doubt. Look at what, look at what uh, it says in Mark chapter 9. This is on page 769 of your chair Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 20. So they brought, a boy, uh, they brought this boy to Jesus to be healed. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. And he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked his boy's father. He replied, since, the bo since he was a little boy. 
The Spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. All right, he's saying this to Jesus, if you can. Now, understandably, people aren't understanding who Jesus is. But he says, if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I love this phrase. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Have you been there before? Have you been there where you say, God, I believe, but I, there's a part of me that it, there's this unbelief that I have. Help me with that. Would you help me with that? And you know what, God, as you read the rest of that passage, Jesus doesn't chide him for that. And so, so having doubt is, is a part of the Christian life. We will go through times of doubt. Here's the point. That the point of faith is this, and, and this is really important. Maybe this is the only thing you'll take from the message. The measure of your faith is now not how much, not how much you believe. It's not how much you believe. It's where you believe. You, you know, you can have all the faith in the world in in a, a backpack on your back, jumping out of a plane, but you're going to die. You can have a little bit of faith in a parachute and realize. You're going to make it. You'll land safely. It'll be okay. It's not how much faith you have. You know, sometimes we think our faith is like Linus in a pumpkin patch. If we have enough, if we have enough, if we have enough, and we just kind of will to have more faith. That's not the point. The point isn't how much faith you have. It's where you place it. It's where you place it. Every, you know, every one of you is placing faith in the chair you're sitting in right now. You probably didn't think about it at all, did you? I don't, I don't think most of you did. I wouldn't. It becomes common nature that we just exercise faith every time we sit down, right? Hoping the chair will hold us, right? That's what faith is. It's not, what you, it's not how much you have. It's where you place it. It's where you place it. Notice what the writer of Hebrews, uh, the, the, the next point I want you to say is, true faith is trusting God to keep his word. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. This is on page 926. So let me just say, and I didn't say it at the beginning, if you're thinking, this feels like a, we're, we're doing an aerobic exercise in the Scripture. It's like, man, we're, you, you know, you got a lot of stuff here. I do. Absolutely. And you haven't seen the most of it yet. So hang on. Buckle up. All right? Hebrews 11, verse 8. <clears throat> it was by faith that Abraham obeyed God, obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. So did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. The point is, the writer is saying that Abraham exercised faith that he never Never really saw the city, the the, the 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 land. I mean, he was in. He saw the land, but he didn't see it with his people there. Neither did his sons. Neither did his sons. The point is, the writer is saying Abraham never saw the land, but he found an eternal city. In other words, he didn't see what God was promising, but he trusted God, and God showed him something even better. And Abraham is in. The eternal city today. The heavenly city today. So that's faith, okay? So the question is, what is doubt? What is doubt? Well, doubt is giving up on God. Doubt is when we just say, okay, I'm done. 
I'm not, I'm not looking for you. I'm not. Notice what uh, Hebrews 11.6 says. This is on page 926. The same chapter we were just in. It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. Now what the writer of Hebrews is saying is very important for us to hear. He's saying there's two things that have to happen if you want to exercise true faith. One is you have to believe that God exists and you have to sincerely pursue Him. Now, atheists basically say there is no God. There is no God. And, and many atheists, when you hear them talk, they say, well, if God is real, that He can just show Himself to me. He could just show up. If God were to show up, then I would believe Him. But He's never showed up, and He's never going to show up. Therefore, I'm not going to believe in Him. But this goes counter to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's, it's very possible that what, what, what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying is the reason God doesn't show up is because you don't believe. See, the atheist is saying, God, you have to show up first and then I'll believe. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 it's the other way around. You believe in God, you pursue him, and then you'll find him. So the atheist is basically saying, I'm not going to do that. And the writer of Hebrews, or the writer of Psalms in Psalm 14:1 says this about those who say there is no God. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. Sometimes they say it in their hearts and they say it with their lips. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. Agnostics, uh, this passage also speaks to agnostics. Agnostics aren't as harsh as atheists. They just say, I'm on the sidelines. I don't know. I mean, who can know? We can't know. But it's the same thing. They would say essentially the same thing as an atheist. But if God were to show up, then I would believe. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, you have to believe that God exists and you you sincerely pursue him. When, When you sincerely pursue him and you believe he exists, you'll find him. God says he will come to those who believe he exists and sincerely seek him. So doubt is basically just saying, well, there's no God. No need to even go looking. Secondly, walking in dis- disobedience to God. Genesis 3:13 on page 5 says, uh, Then the Lord asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. See, the point here is that whenever you choose to disobey God, whenever you or I choose to disobey God, we are not walking in faith. We are doubting God. Adam and Eve believed the enemy rather than God. And that's every, every, every sin, every act of sinful rebellion is a demonstration of our lack of faith in God. Because what did Adam and Eve believe? They believed that God was holding out on them. What did God say? You can have everything. You can have everything. What did Satan say? You can't have that. You can't have that. And by the way, if you had that, you would have everything. But you don't really have everything. He's holding back on you. And they believe the enemy more than they believe God. And by the way, that's what we do every day when we sin. We believe the enemy rather than believing God. We believe the enemy's telling us the truth and God is lying to us. The other thing I want to share about this is walking in doubt uh, but remaining uh, obedient. That's really... You know, there's a point where you can doubt, but you still remain obedient. And that's really important. I, I want to take you to a passage. It's uh, 
John chapter 11, verse 38. This is on page 820 of your chair Bible. Let me give you the context while you're turning there. Um, Jesus had some friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's, and Mary and Martha, the sisters, their, their brother Lazarus got sick and he died. Well, he got, you know, he was sick. And they called, he was sick unto death. And they called Jesus, you need to come. Your friend is about to die. And Jesus says, okay, well, let's wait until he was really dead. And can you imagine if he went to his sisters and said, well, you're late. He's dead. I said, yeah, you know, and Jesus goes, yeah, I know he's dead. I wanted to make sure he was dead before I came. Well, thanks for that. You know, I mean, that's great, good friend. You know, you could heal him. But you decided to wait till he died. And that's essentially what Jesus did. Jesus wanted to make sure he was dead. I mean, so dead that he was actually decomposing in the grave. And you'll see that in Mary's words. But here's, so that's the context. So Jesus comes to the grave. He is very emotional and very upset. I don't believe he's upset necessarily with Mary and Martha, but he's upset with some of the things that are going on in the crowd and other things. Don't have time to get into that, but let me just read you that passage. 11, chapter 11, verse 38. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across it. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. He's decomposing. That's what she's saying. Jesus responded, I tell you the truth. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone away. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I say it out loud for the sake of these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Did they doubt him? Absolutely. Did they believe? Yeah. Because they moved the stone away. So there, there it is right there. There's doubt, but there's still obedience to Jesus. So, so doubt can coexist with, with, with obedience. Okay? So that's important to understand. See, we'll all face doubt from time to time, but we must still obey and trust. And that's what they did. They obeyed. They still obeyed. And it goes back to the Hebrews thing. They believe that God exists and sincerely Pursue Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. Trust Him. Okay? Now, our past passage shows us a little bit about faith, a little bit about doubt, but then it shows us how do we get right with God. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about the passage that we read at the beginning about uh, this, this covenant that God makes. It's really a reaffirmation of the covenant that He made in Genesis chapter 12. And a covenant is just an agreement that God made with Abraham. And He's saying, Abraham, uh, this is what I agree to do. And uh, Abraham, you have your part and I have my part. And in Genesis 15, God's reaffirming that covenant because now Abraham is doubting because he doesn't have any descendants. Okay? So how do we get right with God? The first thing we see is we do get right with God by taking simple steps of faith. You know, again, this goes back to it's not how much faith you have, it's where you place your faith. Simple steps of everyone can, everyone in this room can take a simple step of faith. That's just saying that I believe God exists and I'm going to pursue Him. I'm going to sincerely pursue Him. 
And so it says in John 3:16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. Have you believed in him? Are you believing in him today? Are you pursuing him? Are you trusting him today? That's the question. This is where simple faith begins. It begins by saying, are you going to trust yourself or are you going to trust him? Hebrews 11:6. we read this verse, it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. There are a lot of people who believe that he exists, but they're not sincerely seeking him. And my, my thing is, I say to people, as if you, as you pursue God, he will find you. Because <laughs> that's the way it works. We think we're pursuing him, but he's really the shepherd pursuing us. So... But you believe that God exists and you pursue him. Or John says, believe in Christ. Okay? So that's the first thing. Secondly, we don't get right with God through good living or righteous ritual. There's a lot of people, especially in this community, who are saying, I'm going to do all the right things to be acceptable to God so that one day he'll let me into heaven. That's basically the the ladder that many people are on. The problem is that ladder's against the wrong wall. And many people are going to find that one day. Uh, notice what Isaiah 64, 6 says. This is on page 567. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. And essentially what Isaiah is saying is, whatever righteousness, whatever goodness you think you have, whatever you may you think you may have on a resume that you're going to show to God it is garbage it is absolutely useless and it will get you nowhere we're born in sin and we all fall short of the glory of God Romans 3:23 says everyone has sinned we all fall short of God's glorious standards not one person that does right there's not one uh, no one ever may will ever be made right with God by keeping the law by the way the 10 commandments haven't even happened yet that, that happened through Moses, okay? So we're talking Abram, okay? Abraham. So this is before the law came, and it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice what Paul says in Galatians. He says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. When I was about 17, 18 years old, I went to a Bible study. At the end of the Bible study, the leader said, hey, why don't we talk sometime? We got together and we talked. And he says, he says, if you were to die today, would you go to be with God in heaven? I said, I hope so. And he says, okay, well, let's just say God were at the gate of heaven and he were to say, why would I let you and what would you say? I said, well, I go to church every week. I go to confession once a month. I'm not a bad person. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most people. So, you know, and and as I got done throwing that around, he basically said, well, what about Jesus? And I said, I don't know. He fits in there somewhere. Notice, let me read Paul's words again. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. See, my testimony was there's no need for Christ to die. I'm doing fine. I think I got it together. I think I got a plan. It will, I'll get myself there. And, and what I didn't realize was I was lost. I was hopeless and hopeless. And this is the verse he shared with me, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's on page 896 of your chair Bible. God saved you by His grace when you believed. 
And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about us. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned long ago. He's saying a couple of really important things. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it. But a couple things He's saying is this. Salvation doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon Jesus Christ coming to earth, getting getting off of his throne and coming to earth and living the life I should have lived, dying the death I should have died, and taking the penalty of my sin. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. But here's the thing. Once Christ comes into my life, I become a new creature and I become connected with my Creator. I become connected with my Savior. I become the person that God intended me to be. And as I become the person that God intended me to be, I start to live out the plan that God has for my life. And my life takes on new meaning and new purpose and new joy and new hope. And all those things come and I become a, a, a work of art, His work of art. And so God starts to change me. But that change comes after, I, you know, I believe in God, I pursue Him, and as I'm pursuing Him, He finds me, and I give my life to Him, and, I, and, and, and then God begins a change. Now, I want to close with this last thing. In this passage, and it's a strange passage that we read in uh, Genesis 15, because uh, God is telling Abraham, cut up these animals and cut them in half. And it's barbaric, it's bloody, it's, it's, it's foreign to our culture. We don't get it, we don't understand it. But this is the way they did covenants in those days. So essentially what they would do is uh, when two people were making a covenant or a contract or an agreement, what they would do is uh, oftentimes they would take an animal and they would cut it in half. And they would basically say, okay, now you, you're agreeing to do this, and I'm agreeing to do this, and you're agreeing to do this. And then they would have the, they didn't write it down on a sheet of paper, but they would verbally just have this covenant. And so essentially what they would do is at the end of the covenant saying, are we in agreement? Yeah, we're in agreement. So what they would do is they, the, both parties would walk between the carcasses. And the point was, as they walked between the carcasses, the dead animal, as it was cut in half, that what they would do is they were, it was meant to be a visual picture to say, if I don't keep my part of the bargain, may this, what happened to these animals, happen to me. May I suffer the curse of the covenant if I don't keep my part of the bargain. Okay, that's, that's how they did covenants. So God is doing a, reaffirming a covenant with Abraham. So he says to Abraham, cut up these animals, cut up these animals, make a path, make a path, okay? And then what happens is very interesting. It says that the, this, this, this presence of God passed, and it, it says there was terror. And the presence of God passes between the animals. Abraham never walked between those animals, God's presence did. And what he was saying to Abraham at that point was, this covenant is all on me. I'm going to be faithful to the covenant. You're going to be unfaithful. Your descendants are going to be unfaithful. More times than we can count. Your descendants and you are going to be covenant breakers. But I'm going to keep the covenant. I'm going to keep the covenant, whether you're faithful or not. I'm going to, the covenant is all on me. So, we come to a place where we say, okay, God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to keep this covenant. Even if you and your descendants are unfaithful, I'm going to keep this promise, this covenant with you. Now the question is, but what about the curse of the covenant? Who takes the curse of the covenant? Well, we know that. 
because Jesus faced the curse of the covenant. See, we're all covenant breakers. We're all sinners. We're all covenant breakers. And there's a penalty when the covenant is broken. And God is saying the covenant's all on me. Not only will I, not only will I keep the covenant, but I'll take the curse of the covenant. And Jesus did that over 2,000 years ago when he climbed up on a cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment he was taking the curse of all the covenant breakers. He lived the life we should have lived. He kept the covenant. He died the death we should have died. He took the curse of the covenant for us. And what God was saying to Abraham is there's going to be a descendant of yours that's going to come. And one day he will not only fulfill the covenant perfectly. He did. He he lived a perfect life. But he took the curse for you. So that every covenant breaker can be forgiven. And not just be forgiven, but have the righteousness. The perfect record of somebody who kept the covenant perfect. And that's what Jesus did for us. You and I are covenant breakers, but Jesus kept the covenant for us. He took the covenant curses for us. And when we call out to him, he covers up us and we find forgiveness and freedom. And the forgiveness and freedom that only he can give. What God was saying to Abraham that day is so powerful. So practical to our lives. It says that when we believe that God exists and we sincerely pursue him and he finds us, that we become under the blood. And though we've broken the covenant multiple times, and we will in the future, that ultimately we can find the forgiveness and freedom from God because he sent Jesus Christ to come to perfectly keep the covenant and to take the curse of the covenant away for us. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? It's not how much faith you have, it's where you place it. Are you trusting him today? Are you pursuing him today? Last verse I'll share with you, Proverbs twenty four sixteen. The godly may trip seven times, but they get up again. And one of the things the enemy wants to do is he wants you to wallow in your sin and your failure. And he wants you to know you're a covenant breaker. And what you have to say to the enemy is, I'm absolutely a, a covenant breaker and I'm absolutely guilty. But there was one who came and took the curse of the covenant for me and kept the covenant perfectly for me. And so therefore, as I confess my sin to him, I am forgiven and I get back up. And I believe that God exists. And I believe in Jesus Christ. And I pursue Him sincerely with my life. And as I pursue Him, He finds me. And I become the person that God intended me to be. And I will have doubts. But I have faith. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. So, Father, thank You for this uh, incredibly powerful passage of Scripture as... We see that doubt is a part of the Christian life. It's part of life. But so is faith. May the faith of those in this room be reflected by our faith and where we place it in Jesus Christ. And may we believe that He died on the cross for our sins, that He kept the covenant perfectly, that He uh, took the curse of the covenant for us. And as we place ourselves under His blood... We find the forgiveness and freedom that only He can give. And Father, help us to pursue Him hard daily because we so desperately need Him in our lives. 
Father, for those who may have never called upon the Lord, maybe they're an agnostic. They've been sitting on the sidelines and they don't realize the, 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 ba- the package on, the, on their back is not a parachute and the plane's going down. Help them to realize they may have a lot of faith, but it's in the wrong thing. For those of us, Father, who maybe just feel like we have a little bit of faith, we thank you that we have a, a sure shoot. We have someone who kept the covenant perfect, took the curses for us, rose from the grave, and is coming again. May we believe in him. May we pursue him. And thank you, Father, that when we do that, you will find us. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.